This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hello and welcome to your book. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your semi-professional reader wrangler, telling you who alphabetizes their shelves and who spills jam on their pages. I'm also the author of the memoir, The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shaped Me, which is published by Headline on the 7th of March. And I have a special discount for listeners because I love you too. Order from themargatebookshop.com and use code BOOKED for 20% off. This week, we have a very special guest and an episode with a difference. This is a conversation I had with the multi-million book bestseller, The Marie Kondo of Feelings, Sarah Knight. Sarah is the celebrated author of The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, and she changed her life by moving to the Dominican Republic. Sadly, I could not afford to go to the Dominican Republic because I spent all my money on library fines, so I caught up with Sarah in Foyle's bookshop during her UK tour for her brilliant new book, Calm the Fuck Down in which Sarah uses her trademark wit, wisdom and compassion to give us the tools we need to negotiate living in an age of anxiety. Before she became a writer, Sarah was a professional reader, working as a top editor and being one of the first to discover hits like Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl and Jessica Knowles' The Luckiest Girl Alive. She has a profound understanding of fiction, of writing and of readers. She is foul-mouthed, funny and fabulous – and as I interviewed her for some of her live events, I got to spend two whole days falling in love with her. I'm sure it goes without saying that this episode is on the sweary side. Here's my conversation with Sarah. I really wanted to ask you about a book that I understand, if my research is correct, that you edited, that I really, really adored, that mm-hmm. did phenomenally well um, in the US, as Luckiest Girl Alive yes. by Jessica Knoll. I loved that book. I... I... I was reading it on a Friday afternoon. Her agent sent it to me, and I knew just on the subway ride on my way home, I said, this is it. She's my next Gillian Flynn, because I had edited Gillian's second novel and acquired Gone Girl before I left publishing and then went to, or before I left that publishing office and went to another company, and it took four years before I got something come across the transom that I said, okay, this is, this is going to be a big one this I love and so I finished it and I immediately came in and said I have to buy this I have to you know we must acquire it for it doesn't matter how much we must spend and uh met a little bit of resistance as one often does in a publishing company when anybody wants to spend a lot of money but eventually did uh did grab it from the jaws of another interested editor who actually used to be my assistant and was sort of my protege if that doesn't sound condescending like she was like my mini me in the best possible way and I just loved her and she was totally on the other end of the auction and we didn't know it until it absolutely sounds like there needs to be a novel of this novel (laughs) acquiring (laughs) that sounds great so I have many things to ask you about that firstly um Gillian Flynn Mm -hmm. I didn't know so were you so I did not discover her her first novel Sharp Objects was acquired by an editor named Sally Kim 
the other SK in publishing. It's actually me, Sally Kim, and Stephen King. Um, <laughs> obviously, one of those people is way more important than the others. I'll let you decide who. Uh, and Sally published, <laughs> Sally published Sharp Objects, and then she left for a different job, and I moved into her position, and Gillian delivered what became Dark Places. So I edited that novel with her from beginning to end, published it, was there for the publication, did really well, we were very happy. And then right around the time I was leaving, she submitted a treatment for Gone Girl. It was it was probably like 30 pages and sort of a, here's how it's going to start and here's what's going to happen. You know, here's the twist and here's where it's going to end up. And I just remember thinking, wow, I wonder how she's going to pull that off, you know, because it seemed really ambitious, but I had a lot of confidence in her and she was a very important um, member of the of the roster at that particular publisher. And um, so I did have the opportunity to acquire that book with her. And then I left before it was ever written, so I cannot take any credit for being its editor. Um, I merely I merely ushered it onto my desk and then had to say, wave a very sad goodbye to you it and all of the midwifery. success. You I did, yes. Instrumental I, in it. I was rather the Coming midwife. into the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing you were one of the very first people to see what it, was yes, going to become. Well, I, and I, so I knew, I knew what it was going to be, but, you know, the very special twists that, that people don't see coming and whatever just because she laid it out. But also I read it in, in its galley form because her, she or her agent or somebody shared it with me and I read it on a plane. And when I read that book, it was the same feeling that I had, you know, four or five years later with Jessica Knoll where I walked into my new boss's office with Gillian's arc that was no longer, you know, that was not being published by us. And I said, this is going to be the book of the year. I just finished it. Wow. And um, and that happened. So maybe I'm a wizard. I don't know. You have powers. No, obviously I don't because there were, there were other books that I thought were going to be the book of the year that weren't. So, you know. <laughs> how did your relationship with reading change when you were working? I know you've spoken about how glad you are to not be in that industry anymore in that way I guess you're still very much in that industry but at a very different end of it mm-hmm. um so I don't want to make you relive times of your life that you didn't enjoy but um did you read for pleasure when you were doing that job or were you reading for work so much that it wasn't possible uh barely I was barely able to read for pleasure I uh, was such a prolific reader as a little kid and a young adult, and I went to college and I got my degree in English literature and American literature, and so I read certainly, you know, for for school. And uh, once I started working in publishing, I just didn't have the time to read. Everything was pleasurable, but to read things outside of the auspices of work. So I would get, you know, by the time I was done, I was getting probably... I don't know, at least five or six submissions a day of both fiction and nonfiction. So call that conservatively 25 submissions a week that I had to stay on top of, read, digest, figure out whether I wanted to pursue them or not, respond to them in some way or the other, plus working on the edits of the books that I had already acquired. And I usually did, I would say, anywhere between three and six passes on a book, depending on how much work it needed, whether things sort of changed along the way, um, especially with nonfiction books, they often develop a lot differently than mm. the, the original proposal. So I did not have a lot of time to keep up with uh, with the books that were coming out during that span. And now I have been able to go back and really just read things that everybody else was reading 10 years ago. But at least I'm getting there. At least I'm there now. <laughs> I do think it's interesting how with books there does seem to be a bit of a pressure to be reading the book of the moment. There's always something hot. And I think it's the same with a lot of the culture that is around us and the way we consume it. And I don't know whether things like Netflix have sort of exacerbated that. You must read it and you must read it now. Whereas, you know, books are broadly, I think, not immune to trends exactly, but they will still be there now and in 10 years and 100 years to go and 100 years to come with any luck. Yeah, and actually one of the books I read recently that I just loved um, was by an author called Marag Joss. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it was called Half Broken Things, and I think it came out 15 years ago. But I happened to be on Twitter saying, you know, I have some travel coming up. I'm looking for a great suspense or thriller. Let me know. And Sophie Hanna, who's one of my favorite writers, whose own novels of suspense I have loved, said, you have to read this. It is a classic. It's flawless. It, there's nothing wrong with it. And it's an old book and nobody knows about it. And you should go get it. And I did. And she was right. It was 
brilliant. So I think that's more to the point of it's okay if I missed something a few years ago. It'll it'll still be there. Hopefully, hopefully it hasn't been pulped. You know? um, but yeah, I true, I do yeah. primarily read on a Kindle um, these days. With my apologies to independent booksellers and bricks and mortar uh, bookstores, I live in the Dominican Republic and I can't get books so there. You so that, um, you kind of comrade your books before she told us to to the outrage of the internet. Yes, I. So it was around two thousand seven, and in, I had gotten married and all of our wedding gifts were in storage because we knew we were going to be moving into our first real adult apartment and so I had this was in New York yes we were living in Brooklyn and I was I was working in publishing and I had a lot of colleagues who were younger than me you know if I was an editor at the time they were editorial assistants and they all love books and they love free books and that's one of the only perks and so one night because I, I had to move and I didn't want to have to pack all these books. And I had the Ikea shelves. They're called the lac shelves. And they're six feet long. And they're floating shelves. And I had five of them. So I had 30 feet, if I'm doing the math right, of books. And I said, come to my apartment for beer and chips and salsa and guacamole. And leave with no fewer than three of my books. You are, you are required to take books with you. And I had coffee table, art books. I had the, you know... 1001 Guide to Astrologist, you know, whatever is I had. had all kinds of cool books that I had collected as a young editorial assistant who brought home free books from the office for years and years. And I had chosen, I had picked out like the six or seven that I wanted to hold on to, and then they cleared me out. They must have each taken ten. And they were so excited. Oh, you have this? Are you really willing to part with this? Yes, I really am. I don't want to have to pack it in a box. I don't want to have to unpack it. I don't want to fill my new shelves at my new house. So I did that a really long time ago, and I never looked back. I really didn't acquire. If I bought a book, I gave it away when I was done with it. Um, and like I said, I've, I've moved, I've migrated to e-reading because then I can have a lot of books all at once, but they're not crapping up my, my home. What were the books you kept? Can you remember? Do you still have them? Well, I kept, I've, I've ended up now with one, um, which is a, a mass market edition of A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving, which is my favorite novel. And when I read it, it was just this, you know, little mass market paperback that had probably been purchased at the grocery store. And over time and over moving it to college and moving it to New York and moving through five apartments in New York, it had gotten really, really, really beat up and yellowed and kind of falling apart. And when I worked at Simon & Schuster still, a few years ago, they, my boss, acquired John Irving's two new books, so stole him away from uh, Random House where he had been before. And so he came into the office. My boss said, you know, I know you're a big fan. Yeah. Would you like to meet John Irving? And I said, oh, I really would. You know, that would be so cool. And so I had my little own mini paperback with me. And it was kind of a group meeting with two other editors who really liked him. And we just, had, you know, it was, a, it was a chill sort of 15-minute conversation. And we were trying not to be super fans or anything. And I, and I stood up and I had the book in my hand. And he came around, around the coffee table of my boss's office and said... Would you like me to, may I sign your book? So it was like this really like gentlemanly, like he didn't want to be like, obviously you want me to sign your book. He's like, would you like me? No. May I? May I sign your book? And I was like, yes, yes you can. That's so great. And he's apparently he doesn't do a lot of signings anymore because he has terrible, I don't know if it's arthritis or he just has, there's something wrong with his hands. And so he really does not do, he doesn't sit down and sign hundreds of books at a time. And he really doesn't like to have to do that. So I, I didn't want to push um, and yeah, he did that, and so he signed it, and so that is the single book that I currently have on my shelves that is not one of my books, because I have all of the foreign editions, one copy each of every foreign edition of my books, which is now way too many, and then there's too many of them, and I need to get rid of them. How <laughs> so. many feet of shelves is that? Eh, we're probably looking at maybe 20 feet of shelves, two long 10-foot shelves, and they're starting to get really overrun, I, I feel, with my books. With Kindle reading, do you look for books that you know you want already, or do you do much browsing? Is there anything that you're looking for when you're thinking about what to read next? So usually, what I do, and this is a great feature um, of Kindle, I have to I have to admit again, not to the detriment of of real live books, is that if you if you know there's something you want to read, you can download a sample for free for most books. And then you have it in your queue, so you're always reminded, like, if I like that, I can buy the book. So it's sort of like I have a reading backlog, like, to-do list for my reading. 
and I just download samples as I hear about a book that sounds good or whatever, and then I pick from there depending on what I'm in the mood for. What's the first book you remember reading and absolutely losing yourself in? Well, the very first book I ever read was called Go Dog Go. Um, and, Sounds great. And my, my mom was really surprised because I was very, very young, like very young. And I came downstairs and I said, what sound does C make? And she said, K. And I said, okay, I can read this book now. She's like, sure you can. And I sat down with Go Dog Go and I read it out loud. Um, sorry, I got a little quiet there. I read it out loud and my mother was, uh, was very impressed and excited. So that um, was the first, was, was the beginning of the voracious, you know, of the voracious reading. And then um, there's, there were a lot of things I just read so widely when I was a kid. You know, I read Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil um, and I read things that, uh, uh, a civil action, which made me think that I wanted to be a lawyer. And, but then I was also reading The Complete Jane Eyre. I just started at the beginning and just kept reading them because it seemed that um, that was something that I, that I should read, but I also was really enjoying it. Um, I love. When you say The Complete Jane Eyre, you mean The, the Brunt Eyre? The Complete Jane Austen. <laughs> the Complete Jane Eyre, the I, full book. I all 385 not, pages. Not abridged. I did think possibly Jane Austen, but I thought. No, no, no. The Complete Jane Although, Austen. Like, all of them. Is there a sequel to Jane Austen? Pride, Pride, Pride and Prejudice. All of them. Um, I read a lot of Shakespeare on my own. I was really interested in Shakespeare. I was really interested in language. It's part of the reason that I went on to major in, in English what because I just... What was it about Shakespeare that appealed to you? Because there's so much. Was it like the grand stories or the jokes? It or was the really the, the wordplay, the language, um, the rhythm of it. The, the, there's a little bit of filthy naughtiness, mm. you know, to be had also. And I moved on to really liking Nabokov for a lot of the same reasons of wordplay and just the, to me, language is a very fascinating thing in the way it has evolved, you know, over time and how certain things still mean what they always did and certain letters and word and, and combinations of letters sound the same as they always did and some things have changed radically and it's just very interesting. Like last night I said, it was my book launch party and I said, I felt so fetid and my editor kind of blinked at me and I said, not fetid, but rather <laughs> fetid, having, having been at a fet. And celebrate. <laughs> she was like, right, right, okay. Accent. What's it called? Um, circumflex. Yes. So, um, so I really like authors who play around with language, and that's always been one of my kind of one of my go-to's. Because I know something that you do in your books that I love is there'll be a joke that's sort of referred to, and that you know, lovely kind of Easter egg treat of like that's my reward for paying attention. And I think what's so nice about having that Shakespeare in you and you know embracing it from start as you see so many other writers doing it and making references and you're being rewarded all day long yes. with all these nods yes it's true it's like I don't I think reading is very fun it was always a really fun thing for me and as we talked about you know when I had to do it not had to do it when I chose to do it and, and loved doing it as a profession um I did lose some of the the pleasure and the joy because I don't know, I was a little resentful that I couldn't just drop everything and read something that I that I wanted that I didn't happen to be publishing. I think when um, you feel like you're reading to a deadline and like you know whether or not you're enjoying it, you have to do it. I think it's very difficult to keep the pleasure there. Yeah, and as a kid, I just read. I read all the time. I you know my husband has a, a much less. Um, you know, a much uh, slimmer background in sort of what I would call the classics, you know, the, the Tom Sawyer and just stuff that I thought he might have read as a kid. And he said, well, I, I had friends and I was outside playing <laughs> soccer. And, you know, I was like, well, I was always in my room reading. <laughs> I was sitting on the couch reading. I was in the car reading. Um, but I, because I just took so much joy in it. Do you and your husband ever read things together or do you recommend things to each other or how's things around? Only in the last, I would say, maybe five years has he become a real reader, and then he has really embraced it and become a voracious reader. So I've suggested things. I've purchased books for him as gifts. He has suggested a couple of things to me, but a lot of... I mean, I've read a lot more, so it's not... There aren't a lot of things he's read that I haven't, or if he's read them, it's because they were of interest to him, and the reason I haven't read them is because they're not of interest to me. But he actually did just turn me on to Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, which was huge in what 2000 and 
2007 or 2008-ish. I don't know that book at all. Is that a crime book? It's it's true crime, but it's also history. He's a historian. He's written probably six um, fairly best-selling books, but that was a big breakout. And it's about the Chicago World's Fair in whatever year that was. It was a really long time ago. And it coincided with the first known serial killer um, in, who was operating in America. And it was just around the time of Jack the Ripper here. And so people were very, they were hearing tell of that. And it was like, that, how could that happen on our own shores? And it was this this really fascinating just history of two um, big events that wound up intertwined with one another. And it was great. And he was like, I told you you'd love it. I was like, and I did. And I'm sorry I didn't read it when it came out. I certainly knew about it. And I just never got to it. So he definitely recommended one of my most recent reads. But it was there waiting for you. And you'll say, I think really, if you'd read it when it came come out, then you wouldn't have had that lovely moment of him suggesting something yes. and being that in that nice. unusual position where he could, you know, yes. have he, an I idea. I think he was rather pleased that he had suggested something that I liked so much. How good are you at guessing people's tastes? I'm going to say probably very good in your experience as, as an editor. Do you, how much did you sort of think of, like, well, I'm not sure this is for me, but it is definitely for people? Or did you have something in your gut that said yay or nay? So I'm very good at recommending books to people if they tell me what they like. It turns out I'm not as good at intuiting what you might like just upon meeting you. And so I've had some misses, especially with a friend of mine um, who shall remain nameless. And I said, well, you won't tell me what you like. You just said anything. Pick anything. I'm like, well, this book is really hot right now, and I know that you like smart literature so I think you might like it and then she's like well I don't like books where children are you know children die and I'm like well I okay that cuts out a lot of (laughs) thrillers a lot of suspense okay you know so so in that sense like I'm pretty good if I can tailor it if I know what, what you like but as an editor you spend the early part of your career doing whatever you're told then you try to assert your independence and your autonomy and choose books to acquire that that you like but that also you think will do well and the older you get, or the more advanced in your career you get, usually you're rewarded by being able to make some um, decisions about the direction of your list that, for me at least, I enjoyed actually a really great, especially my last five years at Simon & Schuster. I did a wide variety of books, and they were really all reflective of things I liked and I was interested in messages I wanted to get across. And that was really rewarding, and it was um, part of the job that was hard to, to say goodbye to. I really loved a piece you wrote uh, that I think is a medium about how to survive and enjoy the process of publishing a book. Um, and I wish I'd had it in my life before, but I'm <laughs> going to be, I've read it and I'm going to be rereading it a lot. Um, I guess the funny thing about books, whether you're publishing them or writing them, is you want to have control and you have so little control. And I guess that the books that you write generally are about you know, it's the the one question to rule them all. Right. Can I control it? <laughs> uh-huh. And that, no, you can't. That article uh, was intended to be delivered from the dual perspective of somebody who has been on the editing and publishing side of the book process and now is on the author side. And what I really wanted to get across was two prospective authors. Uh, don't lose your mind especially don't alienate the people who are helping you and whose goodwill you need in order to recover from whatever bad thing might have happened because lots of bad things will happen. Book publishing is impossible to predict. It's impossible to control. There are things like just the whim of the consumer, but then there are also you know, snowstorms that blow through and, and cancel your book tour. And so there are going to be all of these, and, you know, maybe you like the cover, but you hate the font, or maybe you, you know, your editor tells you at the last minute that you need to fill 20 more pages at the back of the book, which happened to me. And you're, you're not going to be able to control all or certainly most of them. And so I wanted people to be prepared for that because I always think it's good to manage expectations. Just in my life, I like to manage expectations. And to say the very first tip, to lead with something positive is enjoy the good parts. Enjoy the fact that you sold your book or that you've gotten off your ass to self-publish your book. Enjoy the fact that more people will be reading your work. You know, get excited about the fact that you can talk about your book now in conversation and it's a real thing Um, because there will be low points and you will have to deal with them 
And coming from the perspective of an editor, it's just as hard for an editor or a publicist to deliver bad news to their author as it is for the author to hear it. You know, my publicist created this amazing campaign, balls to the wall, just packed full of events and interviews and things, but we are in London, it is January, many things could go wrong, weather, weather, other guests being booked, you know, being late in traffic, whatever it is. And I would feel, because I've known how it was to work on that side of the industry, just as bad for her if a day's worth of bookings got screwed up like, I would feel bad for me. I would feel a little sorry for myself because that's, you know, publicity lost and potentially sales. But that's so much work on the side of your publishers. And, and they also are invested in the books doing well. So I wanted people to go in with that with that perspective in mind so that they could not be I'm allowed to swear on your podcast. Oh, yeah. So they could not be assholes to the people who are working really hard on, on their behalf. With you especially, I think the swearing was a given. <laughs> I think I'd be disappointed if you didn't. I could start really just, just getting to it now. <laughs> you know, I've been holding back. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We'll be back with Sarah soon, but now I want to tell you about my Steal of the Week, a book I loved so much that paying the cover price alone feels a bit like shoplifting, and I want to run back and put another 20 quid in the till. This week's steal is Emma Morgan's A Love Story for Bewildered Girls, published by Viking. It's the story of three women, Grace, Annie and Violet, and how they deal with the vulnerability and indignity of love. It's told with great tenderness, and it is exquisitely and delicately observed. It's Morgan's debut, and her voice is absolutely her own, but she reminded me of Muriel Spark at her very best with a gentle whisper of Alan Bennett. I'm going to give this to everyone I know who loved The Girls of Slender Means or The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. That's A Love Story for Bewildered Girls, published by Viking and out now by Emma Morgan. Now back to Sarah. With the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck. Did you go in thinking that you had perhaps a better steer on what to expect because of that being on the other end? And was there anything that surprised you or do you think that you had kind of the wherewithal to deal with all those highs and lows because you'd been on all the ends? I, uh, I went in expecting very little because my knowledge of the industry was such that I know, you know, most books don't succeed or take off, even the great ones, there are a lot of bad ones do succeed and take off, and it's all very subjective anyway. So it's really, to me, I, I, I forced myself not to have particularly high expectations. I controlled what I could, which was, you know, having a good idea and, and I think executing it well, particularly on a short timeline. And then it was up to not just my publishing team, but also I had some, you know, there, were, there was some responsibility on my end to try to market myself effectively and think of ways to get the book, you know, into the conversation. But eventually it was just not in my control and I did not have particularly high expectations. Um, mostly because I don't like to be disappointed. So I'm, I'm a pessimist. Like I, I like to keep it, you know, manageable. 
Um, and then, and then when it did take off, and it was clear that it was taking off, that's when it got to be much more pressure because it was like, oh well, I'm probably gonna have to do this again, and can I do it? Can can we recreate this? The answer is never. You never know. If you could recreate it, we'd do it all the time. So um, there was, yeah, I didn't have any expectations, and. Because the impression I get from your books as well, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that the thing you'd most like to be doing is yet lying on a sofa in your home eating Doritos and everything else is to get you back to that point. Yes. Prone on a lounge chair in the sun with the Doritos and an Aperol spritz, that is what I would like to be doing. And um, my, my husband says that the reason that I like to sunbathe is because I'm actually accomplishing something. I am getting tan because otherwise he thinks that I'm not capable of just relaxing and not doing anything, and he might be right. Um, but I do, you know, I made this big move. I left New York City. I left my, my very secure, or as secure as a job in media can be, I suppose, um, and a lot of successes. And I did that because I was so unhappy, and I was so just just strung out every day on my unhappiness. And so I've made these changes, and that is those are going really well and I would like to keep up with them. So, you know, there has been some discussion of whether I should be doing a tidy up your mind show the way Marie Kondo is tidying up your your house. And I don't, if that means I have to go live in somewhere in New York or LA for four months to film a show and be working 12 hours a day and be away from my husband and my feral cats, then I don't really want to do that right now. I mean, it's possible that somebody could twist my arm, but um, but no, I do want to be on my lounge chair with my Doritos. I do think part of your whole ethos is about island life, and I love it when you write about learning to embrace the fact that, again, lots of stuff is out of your control, and the internet is patchy, and the weather means that you're on its schedule rather than the other way around. So I think if you brought the um, the contestants out to the Dominican Republic, I volunteer as a tribute. Okay. Excellent. I, will I think then the show could work. Yeah, yeah no, I think they would, uh, they would also have to uh, endure some enforced tranquility like I have because things would not go according to plan. There's also a lot of neighbors, and our house is not really particularly well sealed. There's a lot of open doors and screens and, you know, a lovely airflow. <laughs> But also sometimes very loud music or loud splashing children and lots of different languages being spoken all times of the night and day. So it can get, um, between that and the frogs, it can get a little bit cacophonous, especially in um, in the more busy times. And so when I record podcasts from my, my little desk upstairs, which is about the quietest part of the house, I, I'm no match for shouting neighbors children saying, you know, mira, mira, mommy, mira. Um, and also and also, once the frogs start, I can't really do anything after dark because they're so loud that... Are they like Budweiser frogs? They're not like a low, like, ribbit. They're like peepers. They're like, they're like tinkly and like very loud and whistly. Like crickety frogs. They're, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think I knew that they were capable of doing tiny that. They're tiny also. They make so much noise, but you go outside and like, where is that frog? And it's this tiny little frog the size of my little knuckle here. I wanted to ask you about the pressures of reading. And I guess you obviously had this lot in your job because it was your job. But I do think that reading is something that's becoming a little bit performative. And I think that especially, you know, anyone who uses social media a lot, there's a real, oh, you should be reading this now. There's like a quote-unquote big book. Mm -hmm. It's got to be on the list. Obviously, Everything that you're about is about taking away that should and that sense of doing anything that you feel obliged to do rather than wanting to do it. Um, If you were to write um, a no-fucks-given guide on how to read for you, (laughs) what would you put in it? Well, I would certainly never finish a book that I didn't like. I mean, that is the number one rule for me is don't waste time. Life is too short to finish books that you don't like. And I have a friend, a very dear friend, who will hate read a book to its very end because she just can't leave it unfinished. And she almost feel I think she feels bad that she paid money for the book and she's not finishing it. She's not consuming the product. Um, she wants to make sure she's right about hating it so that if she ever has to talk to somebody about it, she won't be like, well, I didn't finish it, and have them be like, oh, you didn't finish it? Then how dare you talk, talk shit about it? But I just do not have do not have the patience for books that I don't like. Now, on the other hand, I'm also very friendly with a lot of people in publishing, I'm both in the U.S. and the U.K., 
so, and I'm on social media really regularly, and I like to shout about the things that I like because I always know it's good to amplify authors. It's really nice when somebody can do that for you. But I don't talk about books that I don't like because I know, first of all, I know it hurts. Personally, now having had bad reviews from Amazon customers, I'm like, oh, God, ooh, that makes me feel bad about myself, even though I don't agree with them. It's so um, funny now, because obviously I read it and like, I know how many books you've sold. Can I say it? Sure. On the, is it am I right? Is it, it two and a half million uh, all together yes, worldwide? Across, across and 250,000 copies of The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, just here in the yes. UK, which just is... And if you sort of add it all over, I think, does that mean, like, everybody in the world probably has, like, ten copies each? Probably. <laughs> probably. So, but that, like, there are going to surely be, I can say this very easily, there are going to be a couple of terrible, terrible idiots who are like, it came a day late, one star. Exactly. But I know that having been on the, the end of it. Two one star. <laughs> the clue was on the cover. Right. Um, but I've had enough mean Amazon reviews to I, I could quote them to you now I won't but it's I try very states. hard if I if I come across them sometimes I'm looking at the page because I'm trying to change the you know I'm, I'm sending my my editor like oh we should have move this quote up on the feed and so I see I see them and I try really hard to like not engage now every once in a while I want to have an, an example of a truly vicious review so that I can make fun of it and write about it in one of my books. So there was this woman, Amelia, who reviewed one of my books on Amazon who was really vicious. She apparently thinks I am a terrible person. So I do remember that one. But but what was I, I was going to say is that so I, I am so familiar with and friendly with so many people who have the part in writing any particular book that if I read something that I don't love, I don't really want to offend its editor, its publicist, Possibly I know the writer, or maybe I know the writer's spouse, but I don't know they're married. Um, and I don't really want to drop that in their laps because I know that it, it just feels bad when people review things badly. So I really only post about things I like. And the problem with that is that occasionally I will post a book that I'm starting to read that I'm really excited about. And then I, I finish it, and, or I get, or I don't finish it, and I'm like, oh, that wasn't very good. And then I feel like I've set up this expectation because maybe I've tagged the author, or I've t- tagged the publisher or something, and they're like waiting for me to say, I love it, and I don't. So I just sort of try to let those go. It's just like when your friends are in a terrible play and all you can say at the end is like, you've done it again! Oh, so I, my husband went to NYU for musical theater, to the Tisch School for Musical oh. Theater. Very prestigious program, and a lot of... His, he didn't end up pursuing it as a life career, but a lot of our friends are on Broadway, whether they're directing, they're in the band, the, you know, the orchestra, or they're on stage. And so a lot of them are on Facebook with me. And I learned the hard way that when theater people gush about their friends' shows, you can't trust it. Because <laughs> I bought tickets for a show, and I won't say what it was. It's not, on, it's not on Broadway anymore, so you can't possibly be bamboozled like I was. And I just thought it was going to be great, because I had all these people, oh, congratulating so-and-so who was in it. Somebody did the hair for it, and it was horrendous. And that was not me not liking it. Like, it was objectively bad. And I was like, but everybody said it was so good. And then I realized that it's just a bunch of people, you know, fluffing each other up, which is a lovely thing to do for your friends. But anyway, so yeah, you have to you have to look for where your recommendations come from. And I guess what's nice about the book is it's a, fe- it's a limited time and money commitment compared with buying a theatre ticket and sitting through. Well, certainly that was a much more expensive <laughs> endeavour. I think it's interesting, too, that you talked about social media and the idea there are, you know, some expectations of you as an author and an advice giver. And I know that you get asked a lot of advice from your readers on the internet and I do sometimes get the impression it's that you know I have a question for you that's more of a statement Mm -hmm. and people who won't necessarily be there to hear the practical advice that you're able to give them how do you deal with that does it ever frustrate you or have you got quite good at just managing that and accepting that's the way people are I pretty much accept that that's the way people are. I mean, I run through a few different types of reactions in my own head, depending on what kind of comments I'm getting. Sometimes it's the the question that's not really a question, that's just a comment, and I'm like, okay, well, this is what you want to post on my Instagram, and that's fine. Sometimes it's people basically 
asking me to make my advice different or, or easier for them to follow. And I'm like, may I refer you to my second book, Get Your Shit Together? Because, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I'm not rewriting it for you. I'm sorry that, that you would like it to be delivered in a slightly different way. And sometimes people are a real mess and they write to me with just a bevy of, of problems and they sound like they really need help, possibly more professional medical help, but also just like they're just a disaster and I'm really sorry, but I am not here to spend like an hour or two of my evening counseling you on all of these problems that you have laid at, at my doorstep. So sometimes I have to be, I have to be judicious in my responding. I do read all of the emails that come to me. So if you've emailed me, I have seen it. I try to respond. Sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes it's very brief, but I, I do try to respond unless you're being nasty, in which case. I, I guess as well, people ask me for advice and it's, I think, very good of you not to say, like, well, yes, my advice is all in the books. <laughs> you right. can go and get I, one of those. I advise you to buy my book. No, I think that's kind of implied, you know. Um, I also hate it when people when people post, where do I get this? You know, I post a picture of my book. Where do I get your book? Where do you get books? I am get it where books are. By the number of people who are adept internet users and yet unable to Google. Also, people who contact me through my website, the contact button, if you're on my website, I know the email came from there because it says to me, it tells me it came from my website, all of the books are right there. There's by, they're by links. So if you're asking me from that place where you came from, how do I get your books? I think you're just trying to kind of finagle yourself into my day and I don't really yeah, respond well to that. Yeah, it's definitely them wanting something from you, wanting to be seen. But you know there was that Twitter account, I think it was like Harry My Cat Died and just oh, no. all of these One Direction fans trying to get the attention of Harry Styles oh, by... Oh, sort of like, will you retweet this, yeah. you know, for my cat? Oh no, that's I didn't, uh, I didn't know about that. I but think that's, it's a very similar impulse. Mm-hmm. I try to be nice, uh... I think it's great that people bother to reach out to me, but sometimes it's the same way when you read a magazine and you see the dear, you know, dear people magazine. I just loved so and so on the cover, or dear, dear people magazine. I wasn't sure it was appropriate to do this. I'm like, who sits down and writes letters to People <laughs> magazine? Um, so if you bothered to do it, then I appreciate that you spent that much time. I'm really excited that you're writing a book about saying no because I know that that was a big part of the first book, and that was really great and really useful but I think it's this I hate this word because I feel like it sounds quite as a as a British person I feel like other British people will roll their eyes when they hear me say this not I mean uh, so saying no and boundaries Mm -hmm. and I'm sure you hear this a lot but I'm so impressed by how firm you are about setting those up and I think it's possibly identifying what you want to safeguard and then working out how to safeguard it yeah, I mean, it's just like building a fence around your house. If you want to safeguard your house or your yard or whatever, it's demarcating the line of what's important to you and the place where other people can trample around and it doesn't bother you. And, you know, the first book, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, was really more philosophical and, like, giving you, you know, telling you that it's okay to say no to things and why it's okay. But people keep asking me, you know, okay, but how? How do I say no? And I'm like, I... I mean, there are lots of different ways it's going to be almost a Mad Lib situation here. You know, fill in the, I'm sorry I can't come to your ex because this. And it's all about what reaction you want or don't want to elicit. It's about whether you're leaving the door open for a different manner of saying yes, but the no is for this thing. Um, There's one, you know, that I call the no that sends a message. And so this book is going to be a a very clear, example-filled compendium of ways to say no to all kinds of different things and it's not just invitations to parties it's saying no to job offers Mm. you know sometimes people get very anxious about the idea that they've wasted they spent all this time going down this path and then they decide they get the offer and they don't really want it and they feel bad and I've known people that have that have upended their lives and accepted a new job just because they sort of felt like they couldn't not take it Mm. once it was offered to them and I'm like I, I understand that feeling, but I would now in my life I would never feel. I think this is how a certain kind of man gets dates. It's taking mm. advantage of a woman's good nature and being like, "Well, there's every so often here. Mm-hmm. There's a, a viral story where 
a man takes a woman out for dinner mm-hmm. and then when she doesn't want to go home with him, he okay. then like sends her sort of like a PayPal request or something for the cost of the evening. Uh, which characters, if any, would you do you think but fictional characters in books would most benefit from reading any of the No Fucks Given Guides? Oh, well, that's a really good question. I wish I had thought about that question in advance. I wish I'd thought of it in advance. Characters that could benefit from reading the No Fucks Given Guides. Maybe Marianne Dashwood could be with a... She's so... I love her dearly, but she's very sort of sentimentally led and... Ellen's got a bit more perspective yeah, I mean, about her. I feel her. like you can take all of those sort of canonical, like, little women, and you could be like, one of them's really good at it, and, you know, two of them really need to, to work it out. Like, Beth probably needs to work it out, but Joe already gets it. It's easier for me to kind of look at popular culture and kind of say, you know, there, there are people who need to be able to not give so many fucks because they're wildly harried all the time. You know, certainly the, the casts of, of shows like The Real Housewives and those kinds of TV shows, I feel like, these people have way too much time, energy, and money invested like in the stupidest shit. The national debt of Bolivia in fucks on those shows. Yeah. Do you know, though, what you were saying about um, TV and whether that's going to be in your life and wanting it or not wanting mm-hmm. it? All I want is a, a reality show that you do in the DR that's just chill. <laughs> people are having happy. pina coladas. Nobody tears anyone's hair out. Yeah. A nice, soothing, non-fighting... That kind of a show. Do you, when you watch those other reality programs or, you know, just TV or things with tons and tons of conflict and drama, do you switch off and enjoy that and feel separate from it? Or do you find it stressful and think these people care way too much? It depends on the show. I mean, I, I don't watch a ton of television these days. Part of it is, you know, we, we rely on the internet for our TV and it doesn't always work and blah, blah. I'm also usually preferring to read now that I have all this time to read. But um, there were shows like, for example, Breaking Bad, which is just a huge, huge hit in the U.S. and went on many, many seasons. And I watched several seasons of it. And then it just was like I would come home from a really long day at work. This is when I was still working in publishing. And I was already upset and kind of depressed and, you know, and it was – just not a show I wanted to watch in that mood because it was so I like dark but it was just like really depressing in many ways and so I just stopped watching it because I just couldn't it didn't really have to do with with Brian Cranston uh, and co giving too many fucks it was more like this doesn't bring me joy in the in the Marie Kondo world you might say so I decluttered my life of Breaking Bad I told my husband he was allowed to just finish it without me. Have you started to think of the way you were spending your time in that way or was Breaking Bad the first thing where you're like, actually, I don't have to care have... about this in the way that everybody expects me to? Yeah, I'd have to go back and look into the calendar to kind of figure out when it was that I stopped watching that show, but it was definitely toward the end of my time at Simon & Schuster, which was the time in my life where I was getting so unhappy and stressed out that I knew I needed to make a big change, and that might very well have been a a moment where I was like, I'm, I don't need to watch this because I don't... I don't need to keep watching a TV show just because everybody else watches it and thinks it's great and it makes me feel bad and I don't want to do it, so I'm not going to. Which is sort of like when I was having a conversation about China patterns uh, one time with one of my husband's relatives on the phone and I just kind of in the middle of the conversation, I was like, I don't really want to talk about this. Can we talk about something else? Because it just occurred to me that I was going down this whole long road of like, I don't even like talking on the phone in general, but I was discussing China patterns and I just didn't, did not care. And so maybe it was brewing around that same time. But I think, you know, as a reader and a fan, I really appreciate that you've been candid about your own mental health and that being a big inspiration in terms of writing the books. But also I think you're in a, what seems like a very sensible way as an act of self-preservation, quite private about it too. How much of it when we talk about our own mental health, do you think that much of it was sort of environmental or I guess... You possibly don't want to inspire everybody to quit their jobs, but maybe you do want to inspire people to think about changing their environment. I definitely want to um, inspire and encourage people and give them a blueprint to do whatever it is they need and want to do to improve their life, their quality of life, 
their their financial life, their success, you know, however you measure that. For me, it was looking for happiness. For me, it was looking to not be so beaten down and sad and nervous and, and panicky anymore. For other people, they could have other goals. And I, I do think I'm pretty public about, you know, my history with anxiety and depression and panic, um, eating disorders and all kinds of things that have, um, that have shaped who I am that I wish maybe I had known more about when they started happening to me. So maybe I wouldn't have suffered with them for so long. So I like to talk about that stuff because if there's anything that I say that can help somebody else turn a corner... Um, even if it's not being dispensed by an, a licensed medical professional, which I am not, there is my caveat, so then nobody can <laughs> sue me for my advice, then I want to be able to do that. And for me, an environmental change being getting me out of the corporate world so that I could work for myself and answer to myself was huge. But my lifestyle change did not not bring with it other different challenges that were difficult for my very controlling, very type A, very expectation managing persona. So in the end, it's not really the environment, I don't think quite as much, as it is changing the way you react to your environment and changing your relationship to your environment. And that's what Calm the Fuck Down is about. It's about knowing that that bad shit happens to good people and that life is full of unexpected and sometimes expected difficulties and it's not all sunshine and roses and when those things happen um there are better and by better i mean healthier and more beneficial ways to handle them than freaking out and i use freaking out in a broad sense that could be anxiety and panic it could be getting angry and kicking walls it could be hiding under your bed so calm the fuck down is really about changing your relationship to the factors that stress you out especially if like many people, you cannot actually change those factors because you cannot leave your job or you it's going to be a long time before you can get out of whatever the situation is that is causing you the stress. Huge thanks to Sarah. Calm the Fuck Down is out now, published by Quercus, and I promise that it is life-changing. It will give you the superpowers required to handle any situation. You can find Sarah across social media at MC Snugs with a Z, and I definitely recommend following her for her the excellent cat pictures. I'm Daisy Buchanan. Thank you so much for joining me, Biblio Buddies. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at the Daisy Bee. Say hello, suggest some guests, and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked, for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. That's the letter Y, booked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. I'll see you next time for more epiolatry. And if you don't know what that means, don't look it up at work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.